Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Friday's episode of Scripture Uncovered. I left you with an erotic cliffhanger on Wednesday. We're working our way through A Song of Songs, a frankly erotic love poem. But we have to ask, who's the girl? Who is the she, the her, with whom Solomon was so desperately in love as a young man? Well, I think I have the answer. Do you remember back when King David was an old man, sick and infirm? We read in 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. When King David was old and well advanced in years, though they covered him with blankets, he could not get warm. His servants, therefore, said to him, Let a young virgin be sought to attend my lord the king and to nurse him. If she sleeps with you, my lord the king will be warm. So they sought for a beautiful girl throughout the territory of Israel, and they found Abishag the Shunammite. So they brought her to the king. Now the girl was very beautiful, and she nursed the king and took care of him. But, importantly, the king did not have relations with her. Perhaps they held a beauty contest all throughout the land to find the most beautiful girl, much as the Persian king Xerxes, who reigned as Persian king from 485 to 465 BC, much as Xerxes did in the book of Esther, when Xerxes dumps his wife Vashti and searches for a new one, adding Esther, the contest winner, to his harem. In a similar fashion, 500 years earlier, perhaps Abishag the Shunammite, the most beautiful young virgin in all Israel, is brought to David to nurse him and to keep him warm. <laughs> it's good to be the king, huh? But the king did not have relations with her. So while David is sick and dying, his son Adoniah prepares to usurp the kingship. Adoniah, son of Haggith, boasted, I shall be king. And he provided himself with chariots, horses, and a retinue of 50 to go before him. Yet his father David would never antagonize him by asking, why are you doing this? Now, Adoniah was also very handsome and next in age to Absalom by the same mother. So Adoniah had a claim to the throne. Adoniah is son number four. The previous three sons are dead. He is heir to the throne. Solomon was son number 10 by a totally different woman, Bathsheba. He has no claim to the kingship, whatever. Importantly, Adonai is the legitimate heir to the throne, David's eldest surviving son. Yet, David is still alive. Nonetheless, Adonai rallies support from David's commanding general Joab and Abiathar the priest, along with many others. Now, significantly, Nathan the prophet David's close friend and advisor, Benaiah, head of David's bodyguard, and Solomon 
are not among those. Much as Absalom had earlier proclaimed himself king while in Hebron, Adoniah is about to proclaim himself king at Enrogel, a spring on the outskirts of Jerusalem. But Nathan the prophet gets wind of it. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, I'm reading from 1 Kings chapter 1, 11-14. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, have you not heard that Adonijah, son of Haggith, has become king, and our Lord David does not know? Come now, let me advise you so that you may save your life and the life of your son Solomon. Go, visit King David, and say to him, Did you not, my lord king, swear to your handmaid, your son Solomon shall be king after me? It is he who shall sit upon my throne? Did you not tell me that? So why then has Adoniah become king? And while you, Bathsheba, are speaking to the king, I, Nathan, will come in after you and confirm your words. And that is what they do. When David learns that Adoniah is planning to usurp the throne, he is furious. And King David said, Call Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. And when they had arrived, the king entered the king's presence. He said to them, Take with you the royal officials, mount my son Solomon on my own mule, and escort him down to the Gihon Spring. And there Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet shall anoint him king over Israel. And you shall blow the ram's horn and cry, Long live King Solomon! When you come back up with him, he is to go in and sit on my throne. It is he that shall be king in my place. Him I designate ruler of Israel and of Judah. So what will Adonijah do now? Most newly anointed kings would kill off any opposition securing their throne. So where does that leave Adonijah? Adoniah, son of Haith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. Do you come in peace, she asked. In peace, he answered. And he added, I have something to say to you. She replied, speak. So he said, you know that the kingship was mine, and all Israel expected me to be king. But the kingship has passed me by and went to my brother by the Lord's will that went to him. Stuff happens. <laughs> but now, there's one favor I would ask of you. Do not refuse me. She said, continue. He said, please ask King Solomon, who will not refuse you, his mother, to give me Abishag the Shunammite to be my wife. Bathsheba replied, Very well, I will speak to the king for you. So what are Adonai's motives here? When he says, You know that the kingship was mine and that all Israel expected me to be king, but the kingship passed me by and went to my brother. By the Lord's will, it went to him. And those words are dripping with sarcasm. 
by asking for Abishag as his wife, is Adoniah positioning himself for another attempt at the throne? Well, that was certainly part of Absalom's motives when he had sex with his father's concubines in the story of King David. But I don't think that's his motive here. Although Bathsheba was a victim in the David story, life at court has transformed her into a very strong woman. Clearly, it is Bathsheba, in partnership with Nathan the prophet, Zadok the priest, and Benaiah son of Jehoiada, who had engineered Solomon's rise to the throne. And as we learn in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 19, she sits on a throne herself as queen mother to the king, guiding and directing her son Solomon. She is wielding the power. Bathsheba is a very shrewd and politically savvy woman, a maker of kings. And if Adoniah were plotting another coup attempt by asking for Abishag as his wife, Bathsheba would spot that subterfuge in a heartbeat. Besides, Abishag was neither David's wife nor his concubine. We were told explicitly that David did not have relations with her, so Adoniah marrying her would not bring him one step closer to the throne. So, are we to presume then that Adonijah simply wants to marry the beautiful Abishag, retire to the country, and live the life of a country gentleman raising a passel of children? Not a bad strategy. Out of sight, out of mind. As the ancient Greek orator Demosthenes is said to have said, he who fights and runs away lives to fight another day. Then Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adoniah. The king stood up to meet her and paid her homage. Then he sat down upon his throne, and a throne was provided for the king's mother, who sat at his right. She said, There is one small favor I would ask of you. Please do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Ask it, my mother. I, I would not refuse you. So she said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to your brother Adoniah to be his wife. King Solomon answered his mother, And why do you ask that Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adoniah? King Solomon swore by the Lord, May God do thus to me and more if Adoniah has not spoken this word at the cost of his life. And now, as the Lord lives, who has established me and set me on the throne of David my father and made for me a house as he promised, this day Adoniah shall be put to death. Then King Solomon sent Benaiah son of Jehoiada, who struck him dead. Well, that reaction's a little over the top, don't you think? Are we suggesting that both Solomon and Adonai were in love with Abishag the Shunammite? And that Solomon killed Adonai because Adonai wanted to take her? Well, yes, that's exactly what we're saying. 
Abishag, the most beautiful girl in all the land. And we know that she didn't have sex with David. So I can imagine Solomon and Adoniah, who were told was very handsome, were both attracted to her. And she does fit the scenario in the Song of Songs. She sure does. Now, I can't prove that Abishag is the she of the Song of Songs, but I think it's a very good possibility. At least that's how I imagine it. And I'm sticking with it. That's a pretty good reading of the Song of Songs, don't you think? It is indeed a collection of erotic love poetry, one in a long line of such poetry dating all the way back to ancient Egypt and onwards into the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. But what's it doing in the Bible? Many people, Jew and Christian alike, vehemently objected to it. Or they read it in such a way that made it acceptable to pious ears. As challenging as it may have been for the Song of Songs to enter the biblical canon, it did so, at least in some communities, quite early. Four sets of fragments of the Song of Songs have been found among the Dead Sea Scrolls dating from 30 BC to AD 68. Although the Qumran community accepted the Song of Songs to some degree in their canon of scripture, we don't know if they read it as erotic love poetry, probably not, I gotta say, or as allegory. In mainline Judaism, however, reading the Song of Songs as an allegory of God's love for Israel seems to have been the norm. In the first century AD, Rabbi Akiva, who lived from AD 50 to 135, the leading Jewish scholar of his age, is said to have said, Whoever sings the Song of Songs with a tremulous voice in a banquet hall and so treats it as a sort of ditty has no share in the world to come. And in disputing the idea that the Song of Songs should not be included in the canon, Rabbi Akiva is said to have exclaimed, God forbid, no man in Israel ever disputed about the Song of Songs that it does not render his hands unclean, for all the ages are not worth a, the day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel. For all writings are holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. So clearly, if Akiva considered the Song of Songs the holy of holies of the writings, the Ketuvim, he must have been reading it as an allegory. And that's how it's read in conservative Judaism to this very day. The Christian world follows suit in reading the Song of Songs as allegory, although Christians saw the allegory as Christ's love for the church or Christ's love for the individual soul. It seems that Hippolytus, around AD 200, wrote the first Christian commentary on the Song of Songs, but it only exists in fragments and what little text there is, clearly views the Song of Songs as an allegory of Christ's love for the church. Origen, who lived from 184 to 253, 
wrote extensively on the Song of Songs, 10 volumes and several homilies. He called it an epithalamium, a wedding song, one to be sung as the bride entered her nuptial chamber, although Origen identified the bride as the church and the bridegroom as Christ. Origen's influence was enormous. The Patrologia Latina includes 32 commentaries on the Song of Songs between the 4th and 11th centuries, with only six commentaries on Galatians and nine on Romans. St. Jerome popularized Origen's allegorical approach, introducing it to the Western Church, and St. Augustine followed Jerome's lead. By the middle of the first Christian millennium, the allegorical approach was so entrenched in Christianity and its reading as an erotic love song so frowned upon that in A.D. 553, the Second Council of Constantinople declared that reading it as an erotic love poem was heresy. St. Bernard of Clairvaux was by far the most prolific writer on the Song of Songs as allegory, cranking out 86 sermons on the Song of Songs, and he only covered two chapters, cranking out over two homilies per verse. Reading the Song of Songs as a Christian allegory, with Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride, became enormously popular during the Middle Ages, especially in celibate, celibate monastic communities, generating much art in which the beloved, her, is portrayed as the Virgin Mary and the lover as God via the Holy Spirit, a tradition that continued through the 19th and 20th centuries and in some communities continues today. Today, virtually all modern scholarship understands the Song of Songs as an anthology of erotic love poetry that it is although recognizing its allegorical reading throughout much of history in both Jewish and Christian communities. But that's the beauty of great literature, which opens itself to a myriad of interpretations, all consistent with the text itself. And the Song of Songs is certainly a gem in the canon of the world's greatest literature. So I hope over this week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, these three lessons on the Song of Songs have enlightened you, entertained you, and given you a few laughs. It's a wonderful poem. It's an erotic love poem, but it can also be read as allegory. Revisit it. Read it through again yourself and treasure it deep within your heart. Thank you, folks. I hope you join me on Saturday in our tour, our Zoom tour of the new website. Uh, have a look at it and uh, get to meet uh, Dr. Jonathan and Andrew. And uh, we'll be back again with you on Monday. Okay, good to be here with you, gang. Bye-bye now.